Hey, Walmart. Not true. Not true. We have brought some over. many of you knew the little hymn we just sung? Alright. First time for some? Maybe? No? It's a beautiful. It's an, actually an Irish, Irish tune. It's an old Irish song. And I remember the first time I heard this, we were uh, in a ministry in England and uh, the song leader and the music director and uh, his wife who played the piano uh, they had this song, and the first time I heard this song, uh, Brother Jerry, I, I just I broke down and wept. It just it just affected me so much, and uh, the words that are in here. It's a beautiful hymn, and uh, appreciate singing that tonight. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's take take them and let's turn to Matthew, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter six, Matthew's Gospel, chapter six. Who knows what a, see if I can pronounce this correctly, funambulist is. A funambulist. That's spelled F-U-N-A-M-B-U-L-I-S-T. Funambulist. Anybody know what that is? You've heard, how many of you ever heard that word before? All right. Well, a funambulist is a tightrope walker. Yeah. That's right. A tightrope walker. And I've read that the greatest funambulist of all time was a Frenchman named Jean-Francois Gravier, better known as Charles Blondin. His father was blonde-headed, and so they used to call Charles Blondie. And then I guess he just used the French word for Blondin. And his father began teaching him the art of tightrope walking at the age of five. When he was five years old, that's the first time that he uh, walked on a rope. His greatest fame came in June of 1859 when at the age of 35, he became the first person to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope that would stretch over a quarter of a mile across the falls. Here's a picture of him. I'll show you in a minute. And uh, it took him 20 minutes. It took him 20 minutes to walk 1,100 feet, separating two banks of the Niagara River on a rope that was stretched 160 feet above the raging waters of the falls. And he did this several times, each time with a different daring feat. A large crowd gathered, and a buzz of excitement ran along both sides of the riverbank, and the crowd oohed and awed as Bot, Bot Blondin carefully walked across blindfolded, pushing a wheelbarrow. 
Charles Blondin, the greatest tightrope walker ever. They say that upon reaching the other side, the crowd's applause was louder than the roar of the falls. And Blondin suddenly stopped, and he spoke to his audience, and he said, Do you believe that I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And the crowd enthusiastically shouted, Yes! Yes! Yes, you can! Of course you can! You're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. You can do anything. Okay, said Blondin. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) He waited, but there were no volunteers. So much for their faith, right? (coughs) You know, many Christians are like that. They're like these people who, who, who claim to have faith in Blondin's ability to perform this feat, but they lack the faith to trust Him with their lives. So how's our faith? How's our faith? Uh, We say we believe God can do anything, right? And that we trust Him. But when He says, okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Not many are willing to volunteer and get in. So the Lord's disciples were no different than you and I. I know sometimes we think they were... you know, if you've ever seen pictures, the paintings of the disciples, you see them with halos over their heads. But that's not actually the truth. That's not the case. Uh, they weren't angels, that's for sure. Uh, they were a motley bunch of, uh, of men. And uh, you, think, you, you would think that they were men full of faith. However, there were times when their faith was great, and then there were other times when... Uh, that the Lord had to rebuke them for having such little faith. As a matter of fact, on four different occasions in the book of Matthew, he rebukes them with the words, O ye of little faith. You remember reading that? And you know, the fact that Jesus had to rebuke them for their lack of faith, I think should encourage us because it shows that we, uh, that they were not super saints. Uh, They were just like you and I. They were frail, and uh, sometimes they were faithless. Here's a good definition of faith. Faith is confidence in a sovereign God that leads me to believe His Word. Simple. It is confidence in a sovereign God that leads me to believe His Word. Philip Keller, who... uh, is the author of a book entitled Lessons from a Sheepdog, and it's in the library if you ever want to read it. He said, faith is my personal positive response to the Word of God to the point where I act in quiet trust. Someone, someone said, has said that faith helps us to walk fearlessly, to run confidently, and to live victoriously. Faith, in the simplest term, is believing God. That's the simplest definition I've ever heard, believing God. And uh, I think it was George Mueller uh, over in England, that was his definition, believing God. You know, during the next uh, few weeks, the Lord willing, uh, we're we're going to... By the way, I haven't preached this before here, have I? Do you remember, Brother Diego? No. Well, a while ago I was looking at you and it looked like you thought, he's preaching that message again. (laughs) No. 
Brother Jerry, have you ever had that experience? What do they call it? Deja vu or something? You did know the story. Well, that's, that's why I was wondering. Maybe I shared this story before, but I didn't think I had. Hey, young lady. It's about time you got here. Anyway, during the next few weeks, Lord willing, um, we'll be gone next week, spending Thanksgiving with our daughter, with Michelle and Doug down in the Springs. And uh, it'll be the last time we get to see our youngest son, Michael, because uh, he's uh, moving to Germany. Uh, the first week of, G- of, uh, of, Jan- of December, I'll get it right. And uh, only the Lord knows when we'll see him again. But anyway, we're looking forward to going down there, spending time with the family, and then we'll be back. But what we're going to do over the next few weeks, actually there's four lessons that I have in this short series, all right? And you see what I've entitled it, O Ye of Little Faith. And uh, uh, so we're going to look at this. Uh, these, when the Lord had to rebuke his disciples for their little faith, and we're going to see what lessons that we can learn from them, all right? And uh, so as we come to each account, uh, we're going to look at, first of all, the circumstance that we find the disciples in. And uh, then we're going to look at the cause for the Lord's rebuking them. And then we're going to look at the cure that will increase our faith. And I'm hoping that that's what that will do. It will increase our faith. You know, in this day we're living in with so much uncertainty, it's good to have faith, isn't it? And have faith in the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, why did he rebuke them the first time? Well, we're going to look at our text here. Let me pray first. Father, we just want to come to your throne of grace where we can always find help in time of need. And we pray that you'd help us now to, uh, make, uh, to bring this lesson tonight. I pray that it will make a difference in our lives, and that it would increase our faith and give us the strength we need, Lord. Thank you for those who've come tonight, and may you be glorified in all things. And may this lesson be for our good and, and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at our text, all right, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. <clears throat> and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. No man or woman can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubic unto his statue? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Here it is, O ye of little faith. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father 
knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Well, we see here that this is the first time that the Lord rebukes his disciples with those words. But why did he rebuke them? Well, first of all, you see from your lesson, uh, because they were filled with care. They were filled with care. And we're going to look at the circumstances. In, Matthew's chap- in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, uh, we have what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, you'll, uh, matter of fact, in chapter 5 and verse 1, you'll notice that it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was, uh, when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, And he taught them, saying... Now, who's them? The the people, the the multitudes. Well, uh, you know, that's that's what I used to think. Now, mind you, there's a lot of people there. There's a multitude of people there. Um, But listen. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Taught who? His disciples. His disciples. And so, who was this sermon given to? It was given to the disciples. Now, hang on, all right. One author said this, quote, Although he did not actually give the Sermon on the Mount to the multitudes, he gave it to the disciples because he saw the multitudes and their need. And therefore, it was given to the multitudes indirectly as he addressed his disciples. He's addressing his disciples. And of course, it's also meant for the multitude there. But primarily, he is speaking here to his disciples. Okay? Now, Jesus rebuked them the first time in in chapter 6. Let's go back there to our text. In chapter 6, because they were filled with care. Now, he's not telling the multitudes there, although it did apply to them, it would apply to us too. Sometimes, and we'll see this, what the cares are of this world. But they were filled with care. And, and notice the word thought, all right, in, in verse 25. That word thought there means to be anxious about, to have care, to, or to worry. And so Jesus rebuked them because they were worrying. They were worrying. And you notice that Jesus used this word several times in the the following verses. Uh, In verse 25, in verse 27, in verse 28, in verse 31, and then he uses it twice in verse 34. Now, one definition for the word care is, quote, a troubled state of mind because of fear of what may happen. Feeling anxious. Or uneasy. In other words, it means to worry. And you know what, folks? In all of God's creation, only man worries. Your dog ever worry? Or anybody else? Or any creature? And by the way, God doesn't worry either. 
Uh, he's never anxious about anything. He isn't sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping that everything, uh, you know, he's the creator of the universe, but he's, he's not up there sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, uh, hoping that everything will work out all right down here while man makes a big mess of things. He doesn't stay awake at night fretting about the next day's events. He's the creator of the universe. And he's in complete control even when it seems that our world is falling apart. So, why should we worry? But yet we do. Warren Wearsby in his uh, expository outlines on the New Testament said this, the Bible term, be careful or be anxious, literally means to be torn apart. Worry comes when the thoughts in our mind and feelings in our heart pull in different directions and tear us apart. Now the Greek phrase translated, take no thought, literally means to be drawn in different directions. And you know that's exactly what worry does? It pulls you apart, doesn't it? Anybody here never worry? Just curious if there's anybody here who never worries. Five minutes? Okay. okay. (laughs) You know, sooner or later, everyone, I believe, has an encounter with the sin of worrying. And most of us worry about something that maybe happened yesterday or, or maybe something that may happen today or tomorrow. We worry about what we can change and we worry about what we cannot change. In fact, we worry about everything. Here's a list. Listen, listen, listen to these uh, quotes about worrying. Worry is the fruit of unbelief. Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. Worry is useless and accomplishes nothing. Worry is harmful and it causes much sickness and heartache. Worry never changes anything. And uh, certainly... It won't increase your life. And you notice in verse 27, in verse 27, Jesus said, which of you by taking thought can add one cubic unto his stature? Now, there's some Bible scholars who believe that this expression may be referred, may refer to, uh, to the time of one's lifespan. There isn't anything we can do to increase our life by one second. When we worry... We believe more in our problems than in God's promises. Worry is also dangerous to your health. Did you know that? Did you know that worrying can even kill you? Our hospitals are full of people who are there because of began with worry. Listen to this. Our English word worry comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, rigan, spelled W-Y-R-G-A-N, which means to strangle. Interesting, isn't it? You see, worry strangles physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And worry can literally strangle the life out of you. Doctors say that 9 out of 10 physical ailments are the result of worry. Worry can and may cause you to, listen to this, lose your appetite, Lose your sleep. Lose your strength. Make you weary. 
break, break out, makes you break out in hives. Have asthma. It can cause you to have high blood pressure. It can have you to have migraine headaches. It can cause you to have arthritis. It can cause you to have heart trouble. It can cause you to have stomach ulcers and other serious diseases, too numerous to mention. And it can cause hypochondria, which is a condition marked by depression and a preoccupation with imaginary illnesses. That's just part of the list. Can you relate to any of those? Worry will also cause spiritual problems. Worry will rob you of peace and power and joy. Worry will place a barrier between you and God. Worry will, analyze, will paralyze your Christian walk, your work, and your witness for Christ. Worry will weaken your faith. Worry will make you stum a stumbling block to others. Worry will cause you to be a defeated Christian. Worry will affect your testimony as a Christian. Wow, after all that list, uh, I sure want to be more, um, um, more aware of the fact that I don't need to be worrying. <laughs> There's too many things that it causes, too many problems. Let's look at the cause, all right? The cause. What was it that caused the Lord's disciples to be filled with care about? All right? Well, it's the th same things that, that, that cause you and I to be filled with care. And, and there are basically three causes. First, the currency of this world. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What does your Bible say? You cannot serve God and what? Money. Is that what your translation says? Some say money. Mammon. It's money. And um, you know, uh, you'll, you'll notice that word there. It's an, the word mammon is an Aramaic word, which means money. It means wealth. It means riches. And so maybe some translations use those words. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, be careful that you don't covet earthly material treasures, especially money. You know, someone once said that money isn't everything, but it's way ahead of whatever's in first place. Sadly, that's the sentiment of a lot of people in this world, especially here in America. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, Mr. Rockefeller, what does it take to make a man happy? And his reply was simple and direct. He said, just a little more than he has. Someone once asked Howard Hughes, what would make him a happy man? And his reply was, just one more dollar. And you know, for a lot of people, that's, 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 that's life, isn't it? That's, that's their philosophy. And by the way, by the way, and I want to interject this, did you know that it isn't a sin to be wealthy? Brother, Brother Doug, it's okay that you're a millionaire. It's okay to be wealthy, all right? As long as your wealth doesn't control you. And that's the problem today, isn't it? 
Yes, and how you got it. And how you got it. Yes, you got it by deceptive means. Yes. Bad, yep. Then Maybe you have a wrench alcohol that leaves you a million. I don't know. But uh, yeah, certainly that's true. Money itself is not evil. And it can be used in, in, in one, it's a wonderful tool, really is, to bring glory and honor to God. For instance, uh, building new churches, printing uh, Bibles and tracts. Uh, it could be used sending missionaries, as we're doing, to carry the gospel to those who have never heard the good news the Lord Jesus Christ. However, money can also be a cruel taskmaster and a destroyer of men. I don't know if you've seen the news just over the last couple of days. How many of you have ever seen one of these? Huh? You know what that is? Yes, that's a Bitcoin. Just a few days ago, it was worth $69,000 to buy one. Today, I think it's down to 15000 I gave Mark one, and I said, your worries are all over now. <laughs> I bought these on, this week on Amazon. They were, I think, $4. But you know what? And it's all it's digital money, okay? I've learned a lot this week watching videos and that about them. Do you have any of these, Brother Diego? Uh, it's all digital money. But the sad thing is that there have been billions of dollars lost this week because of one man's, because of one man. And there are many people that are, have lost everything. Hmm. And they put everything into it. Money can be a cruel taskmaster and a destroyer of men's lives. The Apostle Paul, he exhorted his young preacher, Timothy. He said, for the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that? What does it say? Many troubles. Well, let me finish. For For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It is the root of all kinds of evil. True. First Timothy 6 and verse 10. And so, <clears throat> that was uh, one, one cause, was the currency of this world, the cares of this, the, the world. And the, the second thing is the coffers of the heart. The coffers of the heart. We see that in verses 19 and 21. And you'll notice the word there he uses is the word treasure. All right. In verse 21. And uh, the Greek word for treasure there is the word thesaurus. How many of you have a thesaurus at home? Yes. A thesaurus. All right. The word thesaurus, the, the thesaurus, it means the place in which good and precious things are collected and laid up. A coffer, a, a treasury, a storehouse. That's what a thesaurus is. A, th- a thesaurus, the ones we have, I've got one in the library there, is a treasury or a storehouse of words and their synonyms. So, in verses 19 and 20, it talks about treasures. These refer to the things that are laid up in the coffer or treasury. 
And what Jesus is referring to here is our heart. It's the heart where we store things. So what are you filling your heart with? Um, What are you saving or laying up that will one day turn to dust and rust or or even be taken uh, taken away from you? And he says there in verse 20, "Lay lay, but lay up for yourselves. Let me back up. Verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, the sars, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So what is it that we're storing up? What are we filling our hearts up with? And then the third thing is the cares of this life. In verse 25, he deals with that. And uh, what are they? What are the cares of this life? Anybody name some cares? Family, friends, job, money. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the everyday, everyday needs of life. Food, clothing, shelter. The monthly bills, the price of gas, vehicle repairs, medical bills, college tuition, and we can just go on and on. The list is unending. Those are the cares of life. So, what do we worry about? Well, here's a few things. Maybe even this week you've worried about some of these things. Our job. Our promotion, our home, our family, our car, our pets, our health, our future, our bank account, our our 401k, our investments, our retirement. And again, the list is endless. Those are the cares of life that we worry about. Everyone here. At some point. So, what's the last thing? Well, there is a cure. Is there a cure for, for, for worrying? Yes, praise God, there is. And, you know, Jesus not only rebuked his disciples for their little faith, but, but he then lovingly reminded them that there is victory over worry. You see, God's word not only tells us what is wrong in our lives, but it also corrects us. And it tells us how to get right and how to stay right. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. I'm glad that God not only tells us what's wrong with us, but He tells us how to get right. So, what's, what's the cure? Number one, remember that your Heavenly Father will take care of you. Verse 26. In verse 26, He says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, and neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your Heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Hmm. I read a little 
uh, a little phrase, and it says this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they do not have a heavenly father such as cares for you and me. God takes care. He tells us here that Jesus said that our Heavenly Father takes care of the birds, but we're more important to Him than the birds are. And He'll take care of us. Amen. First Peter 5, 7 says, Casting some of your care upon Him, huh? all, of, all of your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And that word to cast means to throw upon. You take your burdens and your cares and you throw them on Jesus. This is what it's saying. So throw everything, your anxieties and all your worries, all of your cares upon the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, put God first. He'll take care of the rest. Verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. So, you know, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus wasn't preaching any wealth and prosperity gospel uh, like many are promoting today. He, he's referring to the matter of salvation. In other words, seek God's salvation first, and with it will come His care and His provision. And everything else we need, He'll take care of. Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. So, first of all, remember that our Heavenly Father will take care of us. And then second, put God first. He'll take care of the rest. And then third, don't worry about tomorrow. Pretty simple, isn't it? Live for Jesus today. In verse 34, he is saying, tomorrow we'll worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so here's an important principle, folks, as we wrap this up. Just live one day at a time. Okay? Just, just live. That's all we can live is one day at a time. Um, I don't know if, um, if any of you have ever... Uh, you know, as I close, I, w- I want to share a little illustration with you. Um, did you hear about the clock that had a nervous breakdown? Yeah, really. One day, it began thinking about how often it would have to tick during the coming year. Figuring two ticks a second, 120 ticks a minute, 7,200 ticks each hour, 172,800 ticks a day, and one a million... 209,600 ticks every week. The clock suddenly realized that it would have to tick nearly 63 million times during the next 12 months. The more I thought about it, the more anxious it became. And finally, the clock became so distraught that it suffered a nervous breakdown. Well, confiding in a psychiatrist... The clock complained that it didn't have the strength to tick that often. And the doctor responded, well, how many ticks must you tick at a time? The clock answered, well, only one. 
Well, said the doctor, simply tick one tick at a time and don't worry about the next one. You'll get along just fine, I'm sure. And that's exactly what the clock did. And as all good stories end, it ticked happily ever after. <laughs> one tick at a time. After the last talk. After the last one. Talk. You know, talk. Take the talk, right? Yes. I was just You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're here this evening and uh, maybe your heart is filled with care. Maybe you're worrying about things that you have no control over and you have no business worrying about. You've wound yourself up like that clock did. And you're going to have a nervous breakdown. Just like this clock. Or just like the other clock did. Thank you for letting me borrow your clock. So why don't you just try living one day at a time? That's, that's the whole lesson in a nutshell. Trust Jesus. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, just live each day with eternity's values in view. And trust Jesus. And then remember this. I put it on the bottom of your lesson sheet there. One of the best things about the future is that it comes just one day at a time. One day at a time. That's all we can live. Amen. Here he is. Here's the man himself. The great Blondin. Greatest tightrope walker ever. But he's taught us a lesson about faith. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray the lesson will help each of us to live by faith, to trust you, Lord, and uh, to be faithful. We thank you. Thank you for speaking to our hearts through your word. Thank you for the lessons we've learned from uh, the rebukes that you gave your disciples. And Lord, in the weeks to come, may we learn why you uh, had to scold them, why you had to rebuke them, and then make the applications to our lives. Thank you, Father. Help us this week not to worry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.